When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Warning, creators of this game do understand the subject matter may be offensive to some, but they do honor the families and people that have been affected by these real-life tragedies that these individuals have caused. Wanna play a game? Oh yeah! Lover of true crime? Yes, yes, yes. Well, we got an interesting game for you to check out. Wow. With the mashup of influences such as horror movies, collecting cards, and RPGs. What? Led to giving birth to an incredible creation of this game. Killers, the card game. You are all my children now. This game is a collectible trading card game featuring some of the most infamous killers with tidbits of trivia on the back of each card to help you learn some insight to each criminal. Who the hell are you? Let's not forget, during the game, cops will be chasing you and these criminals. I'm a cop, you idiot! However, check out their website listed through all social media today, which can be found under Killers, the card game. Am I on the internet? I want to play a game. This is John Eisenberg, author of Rocket Men, new book about black quarterbacks and pro football. You are listening to Crazy Train Radio. your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc, Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, this next guest is a legend of the pen 
or in these days, I'm dating myself saying pen. We could say keyboard, but he is a Baltimore-based author, retired sports columnist, and speaker. He is a man that has over 3,000 columns, won over 20 awards, and witnessed many historic sports achievements, such as Ripken's Ironman streak, Tiger Woods' barrier-busting Masters triumph, a famous Game 6 masterpiece by Michael Jordan against Utah in 1998. But back in September of 2023, since we did the changeover, his latest book, which is number 11, according to my fingers and toes when counting, was published. And that is Rocket Man, Black Quarterbacks Who Revolutionized Pro Football. Let's welcome John Eisenberg. John, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Right on. And Happy New Year, sir. Did you have a good holiday? Very, very good holiday. Thank you. Hope hope everyone did. Mine was great. Right on. So, obviously, three years apparently in the making. When did the idea click to do this book? Well, it's a long story. Uh, uh, I've written, as you were correct, with your fingers and toes. It's my eleventh book, and uh, I have there. There's a race has been a thread uh, through many of them. Uh, when I wrote about the early Dallas Cowboys and growing up in Dallas, uh, you know, I, I made sure that I spoke to the the uh, first generation of uh, of uh, African Americans who played for the Dallas Cowboys in the 1960s. Very different experience they had than the white ones. Uh, the white players. So I always had that. And then I wrote columns for years at the Baltimore Sun. And, uh, you know, whenever you write about race, there was a a strong reaction uh, all over the landscape, some of it ugly, some of it interesting. So it's always been, if you're a public facing writer, as I've been, it's always sort of in sports, uh, the forefront of my thoughts. And uh, I'm in Baltimore, as you said, Lamar Jackson landed here and 2018. And uh, I was able at that point was actually writing columns for the Ravens digital media operation. So very up close and personal was able to watch his experience. And he comes in and, and, uh, you know, barely makes it uh, as a, he's barely in the first round. He's a draft pick and, and uh, coming off a combine where uh, scout asked him if he was going to run the 40 because he'd be a good wide receiver. That's almost a hundred years into the history of the NFL and great black college quarterbacks are still experiencing stuff like that uh, because of that sort of old, old racist ideology is the only way to put it. It's, you know, were they smart enough and could they lead and all this nonsense. And so he's still experiencing that. And so it just really hit me that this is a story that, uh, you know, I, I felt like, uh, I could. I wanted to bring it to light. I, I wanted to uh, people to see what has happened all these years in this sport that we follow and love so much, and uh, and it just illuminate this story. And it really, it really came out of all those issues. Uh, Lamar certainly being part of it. Right on. So you mentioned about Lamar and the forty and all that stuff during the combine and. If I remember this correctly, because I'm a Ravens fan at heart, 
an Orioles guy, even though I'm in Philadelphia. They wanted him to be a tight end, correct? It was the it was the Chargers. It was a scout for the Chargers who said to him, "Are you going to run a forty? It was not a tight end. They wanted him to be. They thought he'd be a good wide receiver. Okay, and so he experienced that. Of course, Bill Polian, uh, who's in the Hall of Fame, uh, made some comments about maybe he wasn't the he'd be better at another position in the NFL. So there was a, a fair, and that he, he was a prominent guy on ESPN at that point. So there was quite a bit of that going on with Lamar. And, you know, the second year in the league, he's MVP. And then looks like he's going to get another one this year. So a two-time MVP by the time he's a six-year pro. So the the just the, the whole dynamic of quarterback play in the NFL has changed. And, uh, he, you know, I think black quarterbacks have had a lot to do with that. And... You know, it's funny because when you think about it, try to think with logic, it's I'm 39 and going to be 40 in the summer. But we we had guys growing up such Warren Moon was at the peak of his career. You had a mobile quarterback like Randall Cunningham in Philadelphia. Yeah, and there was others that came along the way uh, from that standpoint. Doug Williams was you know, around with Washington when I was a kid, won the Super Bowl, all that fun stuff. Was it a strike against you if you were a mobile quarterback, especially in that, I would say, first generation of mobile quarterbacks? No question about it. That, that's a really good question. I mean, as I write in my book, my book, it's a book about race, but it's also about football and sort of strategy of football and that position. I, I wanted to tell the story of how what the quarterback position was, what the NFL wanted, and how it came about. And for many years, exactly as you said, if you were mobile, that was a strike against you. Uh, I uh, I tell the story of the late 1960s, a, a guy that a lot, of, a lot of fans don't know about. His name is Eldridge Dickey. He's the first black quarterback picked. In. He was uh, Oakland Raiders took him in the first round in 1968. Uh, he was out of uh, Tennessee State, incredible talent, never played a down in the NFL, uh, but uh, he, he, he was, uh, and he was just five decades ahead of his time. If, if the pocket, the, the Raiders wanted him in the pocket, and if he scrambled out of the pocket, if no one was open, the coaches went nuts. The offensive lineman went nuts. Nobody liked it. It was held against him that he would improvise and do what we consider today to be smart. Really, the only way to go when they're when when you're being pressured. So it was held against him. That's 1968, and really, it took decades later for. I mean, the prototypical NFL quarterback was, uh, you know, drop back, stay in the pocket, and and throw the ball. And uh, mobility was, uh, you know, it was a drop back game. And so finally it began to change in the late 80s and the 90s, I'd say. And of course, it was white quarterbacks for the most part with their mobility that had to prove it, like Steve Young, guys like that. Uh, Elway was mobile, but uh, it, it was held against you for many years. So when I think about all this because there's a lot to ingest you're doing with over 100 years of material what about research where do you begin not only are you talking the game but you're talking race relations and everything yeah there's so many moving parts 
and trying to tell the story. So where does one begin with the research and putting everything together? Well, it was uh, three years in the making, a lot of research. Uh, the first thing I needed to decide was, was uh, who am I going to highlight in this story? How am I going to go about doing this? There's so many guys. And uh, I uh, research, I love the research end of it. Uh, this was 100 years plus of material. And so I sort of narrowed it down to who who are the guys that I wanted to highlight. Wasn't always obvious. I learned some things. I didn't really know the story of Sandy Stevens, who played at the University of Minnesota in the 1960 around then, led them to the Rose Bowl victory and was uh, drafted uh, in the NFL draft and was the first black quarterback to be first team All-American, never played in the NFL. And actually, it was his success that convinced Tony Dungy to go to Minnesota all those years later. And uh, Tony was interesting to talk to about that. But so uh, the research is once you sort of decide who you want to highlight and then it's really no different. You you get into the archives, you read the old newspapers, you interview as many guys as you can, uh, and not just the quarterbacks themselves, but people around them or historians or old coaches, scouts, just as many people as you can. You bring as, as much information as you, as you can. I don't write for a long time after I uh, sign a contract to write a book. I do research and just dig into it, uh, uh, you know, online. Uh, there's stuff at the, the Hall of Fame Museum in Canton, Ohio. Just as much information as I can. And uh, then I start to write. So speaking of that, talking to people, all the fun stuff, diving into things. And I was listening to other conversations and such prepping for this. But apparently James Harris, who was drafted by Buffalo, was a fun and enlightening conversation being a great storyteller and telling his story and such so what was it about james that really made you enjoy talking to him well I, i've known james harris a little bit uh, of course he he was really the first black starting quarterback modern starting quarterback uh, that a team wanted to start for them it was the rams in the mid-1970s and uh, he, as you said, had been drafted by Buffalo the year O.J. Simpson was drafted. And he he'd had <clears throat> basically not much of a career till he got to the Rams. But yet he had been groomed to play for years by Eddie Robinson and Graham. Like I just thought his story was incredible. He had been groomed by Eddie Robinson to be the first black starting quarterback, had sort of flunked out of the league, got a second chance, made the most of it. And then he got into front office work. And I knew Shaq. Shaq worked. I'm in Baltimore and Shaq worked for the Ravens. And so uh, he's just a, a great storyteller. Even back then, I've sort of was around him a little bit and I was able to get in touch with him through Ozzie Newsom, the general manager of the team. And he is, uh, he's an elderly at this point, but such a vivid, uh, he, he's from the South and he comes out of that great uh, Southern storytelling a lineage. And Did you say it was like a fish telling of a fish fishing story? The fish was this big, but it, you know, right. Pretty, pretty accurate with that. I asked him one question and he talked for 45 minutes. 
I said, tell me about going up to Buffalo in 1969 and, and trying to make the bills. And 45 minutes later, he tells me the story. He's coming out of an all-black school. He's going up. He's never really even been around white people. You know, he said, he just tells this unbelievable story. He's eighth on the depth chart. They put him up at the Y. It's, uh, they have him cleaning his teammates' cleats when he needs money. It's, it's an, just an he, – he told this story, and then he winds up winning the job. And he's the starter on the uh, opening day, the opening game against Joe Namath and the Jets. It's such a story. And then he loses the job and barely plays for them again. But he told that story 45 minutes later. I said, you know, Shaq, they call him Shaq is his nickname. I said, I can probably write a whole book about what you just told me. That 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 your experience in Buffalo in the summer of 1969 is unbelievable with all the OJs in there and all this stuff. So, uh, you know, he's just a. Uh, you, you can't top it as a storyteller. And uh, sorry, certainly as the writer, I, I appreciate people that can spin a good tale. Exactly. But, you know, it's, I, I don't know if it's funny, ironic. You know, there's so many different directions you can go. But you did mention about being drafted the same year with OJ. And OJ was treated like the second coming as a running back. Knew he was going to start all that stuff. And James was like, like you said, put up at the Y, clean cl teammates' cleats for extra money, all that stuff. Why was there such a difference in how they were treated? Pro football was a lot different then. Uh, you know, there wasn't just this, this, this hyperventilating reporting on everything. And you could, a lot of stuff went under the radar. And he, I mean, OJ, as you said, was was royalty. I mean, he's coming to Buffalo, which it had, you know, it's a, it 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 was it was not the bright lights, big city, and they were so excited to have this incredible superstar there, and they just bent over backwards for him. And James, you know, the guy, the 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 black quarterback taken in the eighth round. And once you got below the first or second round, you were kind of a long shot to make it. And uh, they played hardball with you. And he didn't have an agent. Eddie Robinson had to negotiate his contract. The sport is just different in every way. And, and uh, these teams didn't have a lot of money. And so they were looking to cut costs. And they, they put up guys at the Y. And uh, OJ got a suite because he was OJ. But <laughs> uh, they, they put up guys. If you were an eighth-round draft pick, you were, you know, good luck to you. You know, he 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 showed up without a contract. Uh, pro football, you just can't emphasize enough how different it was, and so things like that could happen back then. Yeah, but you know, you talk about some of the sad tales of the racism and stereotype and everything else throughout the history of the game with not only football, but the quarterbacks, all that stuff with the story of Rocket Man. But what would you say has been the biggest improvement? Because now when you think about it, and even into, I would say, even into the teens, the hot teens, you had guys like Cam Newton drafted, had great success in Carolina, then we know what happened with him. But now you have guys like Lamar Jackson in Baltimore, Patrick Mahomes, in Kansas City and these other guys who are 
they're standing on the building blocks of some of these other guys mentioned, like a, a Randall, a Michael Vick, a Warren Moon, Doug Williams, you know, James Harris, you know, you go down the list. So how do you think the game has improved in how they treat guys? Well, it's it's changed a lot uh, in terms of opportunity for black quarterbacks. And, and to me, there's sort of a seminal moment along the way. You're so right about how it didn't. It's a recent development. You know, again, talking about why I chose to write the book. I mean, you know, we're 80, 90 years into the NFL and look at, say, go back to 2010. All right. Let's pick that year out. Who Look at the quarterback position in the NFL. What do you have there? Uh, who are the best quarterbacks? You have Tom Brady winning the Super Bowls. All right. You have Peyton Manning. Uh, you have uh, they're there at the peak of their careers. Uh, Brett Favre is still uh, one of the best quarterbacks in the league. You have Eli Manning winning two Super Bowls. I mean, you start to see where I'm going here. Ben Roethlisberger comes into the league. Uh, he wins. Um, you know, Drew Brees, uh, uh, the, the quarterback position. Is still there. There had been a, a generation of black quarterbacks that come into the league, Vic and 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 some guys. But at the pinnacle of the sport, it was a white position. All right, and that's who was winning the Super Bowl. Okay, year after year, that was great that Doug Williams won in 1988. But do you know what happened for the next 20 something years? White quarterbacks won the Super Bowl, uh, and so it had not changed enough. It was still a drop back. To it, you know, with a kind of a sweeping brush, you can say it was still a drop back white quarterback's position. I mean, Travis Brady and, and Manning and those guys. So it finally changed. To me, what finally changed was the generation that came in. You mentioned him. Cam Newton is drafted in 2011. Colin Kaepernick is drafted in 2011. The next year, Russell Wilson is drafted, Robert Griffin III. Those guys, all right? And this is a story, by the way, that Ozzie Newsom told me. It's in the book. He said, uh, until that point, the NFL took a quarterback, a good black quarterback, and said, you're going to have to do what we do in the NFL. You're going to have to drop back. You're going to have to learn how to play how we play in the NFL. With that generation of guys, they were so good and they uh, from the beginning and so they brought so much to the table. The NFL finally said, we're you can do what you do. We're going to change. Not you. We're going to change. We're going to open up our offenses. We're going to start running some of this run pass option stuff. We're going to put you set you in motion, let you throw on the run. You don't have to be in the pocket. We're, we're going to change our offenses for you. And so that's the 2011, 12. I mean, Colin Kaepernick, of course, went on to become such a controversial figure and other things uh, off the field. But boy, as an early in the early part of his career, he was unbelievable, unbelievable talent. He was one of the best quarterbacks. I thought I watched him as second year and I thought this guy may be better than anybody I've ever seen. He was unstoppable. He's running around, throwing. And he had uh, the 49ers in the Super Bowl. Almost should have beaten the Ravens. They should have beaten them. Um, so you have those guys. Then you have Russell Wilson the next year. Wins the Super Bowl. Cam Newton uh, gets the Panthers to the Super Bowl. Uh, th those guys were good. And from that point forward, from that point forward, is it, you see the quarterback position changing. And that, to the point where we are today, where you see Lamar Jackson or the younger guys even, C.J. Stroud, uh, guys that are coming into the league 
and are being told you don't have to be a drop back quarterback. That, that that's over. That's done. You can you can you know Mahomes even as great an arm as he has, he's mobile. When the, when there's trouble, he can get out of it. And so the position has changed, and uh, and it's to the benefit of the black quarterbacks who help facilitate that change. And there's no going back. It's never going to be the same. You can still be a straight drop back quarterback and win the Super Bowl, but it's not the only way you have to be. And the one name, I guess he would have been drafted 98, 99, give or take in that time period, would have been Dante Culpepper. It stands out because he, you know, had a unique circumstance with Dennis Green being his coach and some of the assistants and everything else like that. So besides Dante, and I guess you can dive into that a little bit, but also how much does it have to do with having black coaches and everything else involved with the game? Because as well, like you said, the game has changed. I know there's a lot here, but you had guys like Cordell Stewart where teams would not build around a talented black quarterback. And so what about that kind of thing with Cordell and Dante in a unique situation and such? Yeah. You're picking an interesting period of time in this story. Cause you're talking about the mid nineties, the late nineties Cordell was 1995. I think he was drafted. Uh, Dante Culpepper is 99. Uh, of course, Michael Vick is 2001. And the question is, yes, what would that was a period of time where they would I mean, and they all had different talents. The Steelers uh, with Cordell Stewart did give him the chance, which players with that skill set before him really didn't even have a chance to play, you know, who were mobile. So they give the Steelers credit for that. Uh, However, you're right. They didn't really want to build around him. and, And, you know, they moved on after a while. He had a winning record, had a good record with the Steelers. Uh, Dante Culpepper, of course, was just a prodigious talent. Which just, uh, I mean, there have not been many guys that have thrown a better pass than Dante Culpepper. And uh, he was. He came into a unique situation in the NFL. He had a black head coach, a black position coach. Uh, the Vikings were pretty progressive there, and it was a good situation for him. And uh, I write about that in the book, and he, he commented on it. Uh, you know, it, it appeared that things had changed, but uh, that generation sort of stalled out a little bit uh, and and he got hurt and Culpepper got hurt. And, and then again, you had just as I was referring to earlier, you had Brady and Manning and all those guys take over. And uh, it was it was sort of a, a hiccup in the in the in the progress uh, uh, for black quarterbacks was the first decade of the 2000s. Uh, but uh, the, the you you've hit on something big there, and that and that is uh, black coaches, uh, black general managers, people that shape the roster, and of course the NFL record there is very spotty, and that is ongoing. And uh, having a different set of eyes on this situation would have changed things all along. Uh, you know, you're looking at a, a pretty much a white power structure: coaches, ro- or general managers, owners, team presidents changing a little bit but not enough but uh that definitely uh slowed the the the, you know you just have different decision making when you have uh you know a black uh you know person uh like Ozzie Newsom with the Ravens uh you know making those decisions the Ravens from the get-go drafted black quarterbacks and brought them in as sometimes as backups sometimes as starters there's been a lot more of that going on 
certain franchises just always had somebody that was willing to go against the grain and 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 make those decisions. But uh, the the more uh, you know, black coaches and administrators you have, uh, that changes the story dramatically. Well, the book is Rocket Man. We want you to get the book. We could sit here and tell stories all day. But I got a couple of questions for you based on the writing career, if I may. Sure. So obviously you mentioned early on, grew up in Dallas. You started the Times Herald down there. Then you made the jump to the Baltimore Sun in 84, where you paid attention to the Ravens, the Orioles, you know, Merlin Turpins and such. Why, after all these, yes, you worked for the Sun and went to work for the Ravens and such, but what is it about Baltimore that kept you there, you would say, besides the professional side of things? Well, uh, I, I did. Uh, I, I came here in 1984. I was newly married. Uh, uh, the heyday of the newspaper business. Uh, uh, my wife and I, we thought we'd be here for a few years. I didn't know what would happen. The Baltimore Sun gave me an opinion column, which in 1987, I was 30 years old. Uh, 1987 was really the pinnacle of the sports business. If you had your own column and you, and then they, it was the, so I had a good job. I mean, that, that had a lot to do with it. They sent me around the world. I think by the time I left the sun, I'd been to 45 States and 11 countries uh to writing about sports you know writing about i mean it was just a incredible ticket to to see the world so the professional end of it was great and then the the personal end of it was it was it was a a, a nice place i enjoyed it a nice place to raise a family my wife and i had two kids and uh you know they're now in their 30s and they they live in baltimore and so and have two grandkids everybody's here so it, it was, it just worked out. It was a, a good, affordable, fun place to raise a family. And we made a lot of friends and it was just a, you know, it was a, it was a nice place. So like you said, you've been fortunate enough to go to so many places, just the Olympics alone, Calgary and LA and France and Norway, Australia, all that fun stuff, all these different places. Was there a particular place? Uh, Olympics that you really enjoyed going to, or was just great to be able to go to these uh, different world events? Well, my favorite world event that I covered was the 1990 World Cup in Italy. Uh, the 19 U.S. Uh, World Cup of Soccer, the, the, that year the U.S. qualified for the first time in 40 years. And uh, I talked my boss into sending me. And <laughs> so... Uh, I went and uh, uh, the the U.S. got knocked out right away, of course. It wasn't a very good team. And then he said, oh, why don't you just stay and write about all these other countries and and uh, players? And and so what an assignment. I was over there for five weeks uh, uh, covering soccer in 1990, sending back these dispatches, just went all over Italy on an expense account. I mean, come on. <laughs> so uh, that that was an incredible assignment uh, of, among the Olympics. Uh, Olympics are always really interesting. It was a great trip to Australia. I took that was really fun. Uh, it's the only time I, I'd been there. Certainly the Olympics of, uh, in Lillehammer, Norway in 1994 stand out to me. 
There was a Winter Olympics. It was great. Uh, that was the one with Tanya Harding and Nancy Kerrigan. So there was a lot of drama. Plus, uh, the Norwegians were just great hosts. I mean, it was really cold, really cold. There, there was no, uh, this, I don't think we saw a cloud for two weeks. The sun was out every day for about seven hours, you know, then the rest of the time it was dark. Uh, but it was just a great Olympics. They were really into it. And uh, uh, so uh, they, they would come out. You'd, you'd be there at cross-country skiing event, and there'd be 100,000 people on the side of a mountain. And you're thinking, boy, uh, you know, I've wandered into an interesting situation here. So uh, that was that's one that stands out to me. And, uh, you know, it's funny, as I grab this off the bookshelf, as far as the cold, the whiskey tends to keep you warm. But... <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Well, the Norwegians, so, I'm trying to remember what we had, but uh, something. <laughs> There's usually something to help keep you warm. But back stateside, you had an opportunity, obviously, being in Baltimore to follow Cal's career, the Iron Man streak. You did a book on that as well. But what was it? And I'm obviously biased because as a fan, I I grew up loving Ripken, still love Ripken. I followed his son Ryan through his career. What was it about Ripken that made him so special? Was it the hometown boy done good? What you know? There's just so much there. What was it from your perspective that? And yeah, what was it about from your perspective that made Cal Ripken Jr. special? Cal is it such an interesting case. You know, as you said, I did write a book about it. Uh, you know, he he's he's truly a son of baseball. I mean, his his upbringing was unusual. His father was a strong personality, you know, minor league coach, a scout, and he's just steeped in it. And so he comes into it, comes into baseball as a guy that is just uh, understands it just intuitively so it is truly in his dna i mean like literally and and so uh he brought that to it and he always uh what he understood and brought to the game was that everyday mentality and it ultimately became his defining thing of course with the streak and all that but he he his father taught him so well uh, you know, you, you made a lousy play, you know, you make an error, you know, get your butt up and, and make the next play. Uh, you know, you have a bad game, uh, you know, go to sleep and, and, you know, you got tomorrow, uh, and, and, you know, practice, 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 you know, the more you practice, the better you'll get. So Cal to me is just, uh, that's what I've always, uh, you know, loved about baseball, different than football where it, it, there's so few games, each one's such a major event. Uh, and there's such, uh, I mean, in, in baseball, it's really, you can have a really bad game. And then, but in the long run, if you have a lot of good games, it doesn't matter. And so the everyday mentality of baseball, just the grind of it, he understood it and lived it and just just grasped it so much so uh, you know, people would say, well, what are the highlights? You wrote about Cal all those years. And yeah, there were some highlights, the 3,000th hit, the 400th home run. I was there for a lot of them. But honestly, Cal Ripken in a nutshell is the day he went one for four against the Twins on a Tuesday night in June. 
And that's Cal Ripken. You know, it wasn't just crazy spectacular. It was just baseball. And so that's that's what I remember best about him. And, you know, it wasn't it wasn't something just dynamic and spectacular. It was just good baseball over and over and over again for so long. You can't even believe it. Well, I mentioned his son, Ryan, who is now retired. He's coaching actually with uh, Rick Dempsey's uh, new school down in the area. But how much pressure and I've had a chance to talk to Ryan a little bit. You know, over the years when he was playing and such, but how much pressure do you think it was on him? I don't think he'd ever admit it. Growing up with such ilk as both Cal Senior and Junior as family lineage. Oh well, it's just unbelievable pressure. His father, in particular, I mean, it's to, to go into that line of work. You know, you're asking for it there because he's. Uh, and that's not to say you can't succeed. It doesn't make you succeed or, or or whatever. You can do it, but you're you're held to a very high standard there with that name. So it's tough, you know, and he I think he gave it his best shot. And uh, easier, you know, baseball's hard. It's so hard. Yeah. And uh, he actually, I think, got as far as AAA. Uh, yeah, he played and, in Norfolk a little bit. Yeah, I mean, to, to his credit. But uh, that's tough, very tough to make it. I mean, you can be a really, really great baseball player and not make it. So, so it's yeah. it's tough. Yeah. But uh, last two, Jordan in Utah. You know how unbelievable was that? Because Jordan always played to, always had that mentality: play to win, and just he grinded it out. You know, the flu game. Just there's so many different stories with him. What was that like? being able to cover Jordan, especially at that last game? Well, I had the worst seat in the house. I was in some uh, auxiliary press box. I was way up somewhere. So it was sort of, I was looking down, you know, with binoculars. So, but uh, it seemed like, but uh, it was amazing. I had covered him actually as a young player. Uh, my prior stop when I was in Dallas uh, working at the Times Herald, my last job was covering the Mavericks. And I was there when Jordan came into the league. So, and and it was the era where uh, the mid, uh, the early to mid eighties, and uh, you could walk into a locker room before a game and talk to a guy. And uh, there was it was a lot a lot better access. So I I, I vividly remember going into the Chicago Stadium, I think it was, and talking to Michael Jordan as a rookie, uh, just in the locker room. Uh, at the Bulls locker room before the game, and and you could already tell then it's like, whoa, this guy uh, is is really something special. So then all those years later, to uh, I mean, I didn't cover the NBA once I came to Baltimore, so just had followed it. But uh, at that game in particular, it was just yeah, such a winner. I mean, such a uh, just com- competitiveness of of Jordan uh, was. Uh, just a, a sight to behold. That's what you see in some of these great athletes. It's just the competitiveness. I, I, I think of Tom Brady uh, when he was behind. What was the score to, to Atlanta? What were they losing by? Twenty-eight to three or something, something like, like that. Yeah. In the Super Bowl, and then he completed like fifty passes to win the game. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was it was similar to that. It was like, well, Jordan is just not going to lose this game. And uh, he's in Utah. They were great, great fans. 
So some guys just are like, well, you're, you're just, I'm just not going to lose this game. And it's, it's an amazing thing to watch. Yeah. And the other one I wanted to obviously mention, I mentioned in the intro, as I sit here looking at a rare pin flag from Tiger Woods when he uh, hit 82, but what was it? And I guess it would tie in with the book, but from golf, what was that like seeing Tiger change the game of golf? It, was, it almost felt like it was destined. The 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 Masters that I, I covered him was in 97, I believe it was. Uh, and he won by, I mean, he, it, you just felt like this is, this is going to happen. Almost went into the, I covered the Masters almost every year for the Baltimore Sun. And so many years, great golf, great event, great tournament. Of course, with its own set of issues about race. I mean, needless to say, you're in the South. Uh, you know, there were issues about the club letting in blacks and women. And, you know, here comes Tiger Woods and just busting all those barriers and was just, it was, uh, yes, uh, the, uh, you know, the, to see, uh, you know, uh, a, a young athlete like that come in and just the sport, it just, just elevated the sport so much. It was just, well, you know, I'm not about any of that. I'm just about playing incredible golf. No one had ever seen golf uh in some regards like that how far he hit it and just he won by 10 shots or 12 i've forgotten he won by a lot it was just stunning to see such a young guy just on so many levels just just bust all preconceived notions about on and off the golf course and uh, you knew you were watching something that it was really it was near the end of that century and it was one of the one of the moments of the century and mm -hmm. you knew it as it was happening it's like this this is something amazing and to be able to sit in, in a front row seat per se to watch history being made for many different things i am a in all of you but to because i have a background in history as well and to watch historic things happen up front like that is unbelievable. But the book is Rocket Man, the black quarterbacks who revolutionized pro football. John Eisenberg will have links to everything where you can get at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, all that fun stuff. Thank Great. you so much. All right. Thank you. My pleasure. I enjoyed it. Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any of the films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. 
Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hi, this is Buck Joel, and you're listening to Crazy Train Radio. 